Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Stacks. Uh, this is Jay. And I'm Shanna. And this week, we are talking Gamora. Uh, Gamera, 1965, director Noriaki Yuasa. We're beginning the series. Uh, this is a film I've seen so many times. <laughs> uh, this movie, I, I was first introduced to it through Mystery Science Theater, uh, and I just rewatched the Mystery Science Theater episode like 20 minutes ago. I just finished watching it before we started recording. Um, I have at least four or five different versions of this movie because there's the original Japanese cut. There's Gamera, the invincible, which was the original American re-edit and dub, which is very different and weird. And I'll talk a bit about that when we come up to it. Uh, that's included as an extra on the, the arrow set uh, on, on the disc with this first one. Uh, there are, also, the Sandy Frank, there's the Sandy Frank re-edit, uh, which is mostly the original Japanese version, but dubbed. So it has, so it's not the edit, but it's a different dub, and it's dubbed based on the original script rather than the American script, which is totally different. All right, uh, all right. And then, of course, the Mystery Science Theater version. And I've seen all of these versions so many times. Uh, so... I, I, I'm pretty solid on this one. This this is one that uh, I, I uh, have a lot of experience with. And th this is your first time watching it. Like you have not seen even the Mystery Science Theater before. No, I haven't even seen that. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so any overall thoughts regarding Gamera before we like get into the story? Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know what it was. I thought it was just another monster in the Godzilla universe. I didn't realize he was his own thing. Yeah, he's sort of a parallel Godzilla franchise. Yeah, um, the monster design is great. Uh, I love the way it moves. The way it moves is so much fun. <laughs> he he like, does like, the George Jefferson swag walk all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, I love the way he, not just that he flies, but how he does it. The spinning? It's, the spinning. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I love it. Um, in, a few months ago in Final Fantasy uh, 14, I actually got a a friend gifted me a turtle mount, like a giant turtle that you could ride on. And I oh, was cool. riding around on this turtle and they're like, hey, take it up into the sky. And I'm like, oh, OK. So I'm sitting on the back of this turtle and I just hit the fly button and it just starts spinning around and spinning around so fast that all of this like fire comes out and... Anyway, now I know where that came from. Yeah, it must it, it must be a direct reference to camera. That's cool. <laughs> There's not much else it could be. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I And, like, this is a big series. Uh, this was the original one. This is 65. So it's a solid, like, seven years after Godzilla. And I think Godzilla, the series, had started to get a little bit sillier by this point. Maybe. Maybe it's... not. This one's not this one isn't silly. This one is nowhere uh, near as silly as the subsequent ones. They get silly very quickly and this is already a little bit sillier than Godzilla. <laughs> it's a little silly, but it's fun. Oh, it's very it's, fun. It's just it's more fun. Ch children oriented 
like clearly it's more oriented toward a child audience than Godzilla to begin with. Like especially with Toshio as the viewpoint character, sort of. More so yeah. than the American version. Yeah. <laughs> uh so we open in the Arctic. Uh quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> there it's it's not a very convincing Inuit village. Uh, no. <laughs> so they've they've got their igloos. They're made of plaster. They're not really igloo shaped. They're kind of just they're, they're domes, but they're not mm-hmm. proper igloos for sure. Uh, you can see the seams in the Arctic sky backdrop. I'm fairly certain. <laughs> Probably, but I wasn't paying that close attention. I, no. I was too put off by the fact that they were using the word for Inuit that we don't use anymore, the slur, a lot. Yeah, not surprising. I mean, I like mean, it's it's what you called them was, back then. But yeah, that no. like even in the '80s, that was just the name you used. Uh, what, what I find interesting here, both like sort of the the culminating or not the culminating, uh, the uh, inciting incident of the whole Gamera thing, is sort of a Cold War instance. Like, so there there's this plane that goes by and. Like I, I think it's our our scientist Professor Hadaka who's like the Cold War rages on, and there, oh, yeah. there's like the, the the American plane chasing an unidentified plane. Hey, we never uh, find out who that plane belongs to. No, and I think that's purposeful. Uh, they make it very clear that it's not Japanese and it's not American, uh, because you know it's it's obviously not uh, Japan. And the Americans are the ones who are tracking it and shoot it down. Uh, so it's clearly not either of our biggest markets. <laughs> Don't worry about that. It's because they, they refer to it later when when uh, Hidaka is doing the interview at New York News Studio. Uh, they refer to it as an unnamed country's a bomb. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, we. We never find out. They don't really hint towards. Yeah, they don't hint at all about who it could be. No, no idea. Uh, clearly, just meant to. It, it, they they needed to have an atomic bomb, and they couldn't have it fired by one of their big markets. Obviously. What's Doctor Doom's country called? Latveria. Well, let's have it Lat- be them. Latveria let's, makes sense. Yeah, let's just say it's them. Uh, and the plane does seem to be a special spy plane, uh, as when we cut to the American base and the American base, the actors there are pretty bad. Like it's, they're, they're not great, but at least they are speaking English. They are genuinely speaking English. I, I think they're probably non-actors and like they just got whatever white people they had hanging around. Yeah, Probably. Because they definitely do not seem comfortable on camera. The line readings are very shaky. Uh, like when the the first guy, he's like, it must be coded with anti-electric oh, yeah. wave paint. <laughs> Real hard time with that one. Uh, so w- what we get first is is the Americans are shooting down this plane, which is carrying nuclear weapons. So it crashes into the ice. It wakes up Gamera. Uh, in the American version, Gamera the Invincible, this sequence is like 15 minutes. Uh, you you have 
the American plane, like the guy who flies the plane becomes one of the main characters of the movie. You see him a lot. Uh, he's that guy's gone after this scene. Correct. He's a major character in the American version. Uh, he has, cause like he contacts base and then all of the people at the, all of the base scenes are completely reshot with new actors for the American oh. version and considerably expanded. So what you get throughout the American version are the American perspective on the gamma issue. <laughs> That's what we need. <laughs> it's, it's a very weird version. It's so different. Uh, but it, in this version, just the plane fires like four rockets right away at the unidentified plane. Just seems like maybe a little bit of overkill, but you know it, well, it you does the job. Know. I guess so. Yeah. Also, they're uh, Americans. Yeah, uh, and you know it's the Cold War. Mm. Uh, so I love how wide Gamera is. He he comes up out of the ice. It, I I like the way the ice breaks too. Just the the cracking apart. Uh, like, uh, like I, I, I don't know what what they use. It it seems like probably just styrofoam or something. Uh, it works. Yeah, no, totally. I I think there's a lot of really lo-fi effects and a lot of fun miniature work. Uh, both in this oh, movie. Oh yeah. The miniature work is so much fun. It, it's I en- I enjoyed it immensely. Like we've got the toy boat here right at the beginning where our 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 people get off and uh, it's the, the people who are in the Inuit village um, they're, they're the three survivors from the boat because Gamera gets to the boat while they're off of it. Oh, right. Right. And that's the doctor, um, the reporter and the girl who the reporter's being creepy with. Yeah. And she's the doctor's daughter. Right. Right. And like the reporter, that guy's weird. He's he's kind of maybe the biggest problem in the movie because he's he's very creepy towards her all the time. He keeps calling her his goddess. Yeah, his goddess of luck. And I get it because it's like he drew straws to be on this assignment and it's the only reason he's still alive and everybody else is dead. So I get that. Sure. He's got survivor's guilt about it. But it's a little bit the the way he goes about it is not great. I agree. Yeah, that he keeps third wheeling himself uh, into Everywhere. their whole thing, and they keep being like, "Well, I guess this is where we part ways." Oh no, it isn't. Great. Yeah, a bunch of times. I mean, like ultimately, it is important that he's there because he does serve. Like he he does do a really key thing later on. But yeah, uh, the the way he's very in her face about it is weird. He keeps calling her his goddess. It's creepy. It's kind of yucky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but, you know. is this where they do the scene from the the plane that totally reminds me of the scene from Giant Claw of the airplane? Uh could be. Or maybe uh, it's a bit later. So like what what we've got first is um so we got the New York News Studio interview. Uh when the or actually first the the Inuits are the the main guy, he gives the scientists the sacred stone. Which looks I like a steak. I thought it was a steak. It looks exactly like a steak. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, one thing I will say about this movie is uh, the black and white doesn't work in its favor. Some of the, like, like the stone looks like a steak. Some of the scenes are just way too dark. 
Um, I think some of the black and white works in its favor and really only as far as Gamera it's himself. Like it, it's the only time Gamera in this entire series ever looks menacing. <laughs> that's it, like, true. I don't think it would look very good in color. And it, I, I've seen it in color so many times and it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Later Gamera movies, he, he doesn't look great. But there's... I, I think specifically there's one shot much later on uh, when uh, Gamera is swimming to the island and breathing fire. Uh, and it genuinely looks quite menacing. Like it's it's maybe the best scary Gamera shot in the whole series. But I agree. The, the black and white does kind of take away from it a bit. It does feel a little cheaper by being in black and white, unlike the original Godzilla, where the black and white kind of lends it more to the how how somber the movie is but this just isn't that kind of movie <laughs> yeah it want it i think it wanted to be but not really yeah so what we have next uh in in the american base uh they they their their line here looks like a giant turtle made its appearance very weird <laughs> line readings uh, and at New York News Studio, uh, Hidaka explains somehow that they know already this, that uh, Gamera is from the lost continent of Atlantis. Oh, yeah, that's right. They bring up Atlantis a few times. And I don't know where that came from or how they know that. They're sort of assuming that and that Atlantis is a thing. And that it's <laughs> in the Arctic Ocean. That it must be somewhere in the Arctic, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's not called Arctis. <laughs> but he also says that they're not worried about Gamera because they figure he's just going to die of radiation poisoning. So they're just going to figure, ah, he'll just die in the ocean and we won't need to think about it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, that's kind of interesting. Fast. Yeah, life comes at you fast. But also, that's interesting that they were thinking that, oh, well, Gamera is just going to die of radiation poisoning. Because, I mean, obviously, this is a, a good, like, 20 years post-World War II. Uh, so Japan especially is very aware of the effects of radiation poisoning. So that's interesting to sort of throw that in there in this children's movie. Yeah, actually. I, mm, yeah. You have to talk uh, about that. Yeah. Uh, so what we get for a little while is Gamera undercover as a UFO. And I love these bits. Oh, yeah. It's just flying around. I, I love the night flying animation, like just the animated uh, shell with rockets that, that it, you it see looks, flying around at night. It, it looks pretty good. I dig it. For the uh, and and the, the, drunk, the drunk guy sees it. <laughs> the oh, drunk. yeah. <laughs> the comical drunk. He's like, oh, is this one of those UFOs I've been hearing so much about? Or, or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and this, I think, is when there's the plane scene where he talks about the, the reporter comes to tell them about his story about drawing straws and how he has survivor's guilt and uh, oh, right. calls her the goddess. So what what did you have in mind regarding that one? Oh, just that it reminds me at this point in the movie, it reminded me so much of Giant Claw that we talked about however many weeks or months ago. But good. Yeah, it, it does so, have a very similar Up until flavor. probably about halfway through, this movie is just that movie, but good. 
Mm-hmm. And then it goes in a different direction. It goes in a very different direction, but a, a here, better direction. Here on the airplane, I really wanted somebody, like a passenger, to be like, "Hey, quit creeping on this lady, dude." <laughs> yeah, like you're trying to thank her for saving your life. Maybe ease up a bit. Yeah, like I, I know that you probably got PTSD from the giant turtle, and, and it's kind of affected the way you're thinking. But like, just go to, just take take a little bit of therapy. Don't don't push that onto this poor girl who probably also is dealing with a lot of shit right now because the giant turtle. Man, why doesn't that passenger exist? <laughs> uh, so now is when we're introduced to the main character of the American version of the movie, Toshio. Uh, the turtle obsessed boy from Hokkaido. I like this kid, even though I shouldn't. This kid embodies everything that I hate about movie kids, but I like him. I think he's played pretty well. Like, uh, it doesn't work as well in any of the dubs, but like the original uh, language version is pretty good. Uh, he he plays it. He doesn't play it very uh strident it's it's not it doesn't get on your nerves he's just this kid who really loves turtles and he just has this bond with turtles and gamera for some reason yeah yeah and and uh he he doesn't he's not over the top with it either which he really easily could have been he just I, i could see this kid being just a normal kid who happens to be able to sneak past any security anywhere yeah and sometimes he's maybe a bit much like when he's uh telling the the military what to do later on but i i agree he's not too too bad most of the time and i feel like his parents or his his dad and his sister mom are maybe a little too hard on him because he just has a little pet turtle come on i i think I know. Uh, the impression I got was like he's telling him not to bring this turtle to school because, like, is it insensitive to the people who have lost their lives because of Gamera? I think it's just that they feel it's a distraction from his schoolwork, and he's like, because the, the school teacher comes to complain to his sister that he's just spending too much time thinking about turtles, and all of his schoolwork he just makes about turtles. So they feel like it's just affecting his studies, I guess. And the dad does say something about how he should make some human friends, which um, true he should. Yeah, and he clearly has problems with that. Like we see him later with, I think it's his cousin, although his cousin's kind of a bit of a shit, who yeah, who throws away all the rocks later on. But yeah, oh yeah, that sucks. But we we grew up in like the eighties, nineties. I don't know about you, but I had a turtle phase. It was a ninja turtle phase, but I had a turtle phase, and I didn't sure. want to talk to other humans, and I turned out, we need to help this kid. <laughs> so, like, I, I love the kids, the, the turtle's named Tibby, which translates to Peewee. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in uh, the, the Sandy Frank dub, they just keep it as Tibby, which is funny. They just have him yelling Tibby all the time. Uh, I was hearing it as Chibi. Oh, interesting. It could be. Yeah, that, that's how. That's just how I heard it anyway. Like it, that. That totally makes sense. But uh, it, it's it's completely Tibby uh, in the redub for sure. Oh, okay. I just I, I know I just watched it. 
but yeah, it's it's just weird. But it's it's meant to be peewee is is how it translates, and I think that's how they use it in the American version. I can't remember. But they make him set his pet turtle free, and he seems to think Tibby became Gamera at first. Yeah, even though Gamera is already out and about and stuff, but he he acts like they're one and the same. Right, because I guess he has no one... reason to think that, too, later on. Well, yeah, yeah, totally. And there is sort of a weird bond between them because Gamera is a friend to children everywhere. I mean, he isn't in this movie yet, but he sort of still is. He's just not a friend to adults at all. He's a friend to this one particular child. This one is everywhere. This kid is everywhere. This kid gets around. (laughs) This is like... If if this kid set his mind to anything other than turtles, he'd be so dangerous. He could be very scary. Uh, so they see Gamera head, uh, spotted uh, heading for a geothermal power plant. And they finally realize, like, oh, Gamera is still out there. Because uh, they, they thought right, initially... they thought he was going to die from the radiation. It's like, oh, yeah. he's just going to be gone. Uh, and first they try to electrocute Gamera going to the geothermal plant, but that totally doesn't work. And and this is where we get him doing the walk, which I really love, just him walking cross country. And I, I really like the big shots you get of him here because the costume is so round. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good costume. Yeah, it's great. And it's just like, it's almost as wide as it is tall, which is really interesting looking. Yeah, and and the way the way he moves, like it looks like the character is having a blast, just going around, move, waving his arms and stopping. And it looks like the guy in the suit is having a blast. It's it's totally the swag walk. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, and so they learn that he absorbs fire, like he's just sucking up all the fire uh, from the the yeah. plant. Like he's just absorbing the energy of the thermal plant. Yeah, there's a cool scene where he's just sucking all the fire into his mouth. They're, I mean, obviously they just rewound a flamethrower shot, but it looked it looked pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's totally effective. A good simple, basic reverse effect. Uh, and I really like that they actually have a Gamera model that they built a blowtorch into, uh, because they get a got a lot of good use out of it in the later oh, rampage scenes. Oh yes. Yeah. No. It <laughs> it works. Uh, they don't they don't do the recycled animation thing either, or or recycled shots or whatever that a lot of these uh, right movies it, seem to be prone to. Yeah, it, it's like it's it's not a high budget production, but it's clearly one that they put a lot of care into, and like especially all of the miniatures and everything, it does seem like something that everyone was invested in 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 a really deep way. Like it it seems like a real labor of love in odd sort of way. Uh, so the, the, everyone laughs at this one general who suggests steam to, uh, go after Gamera, which seems really unfair to me because, you know, when they suggested electricity, sure, artillery, hey, let's, let's fire some artillery at it. And it's like, guys, it was hit by an A-bomb to begin with. (laughs) Like, I, I get the, like... These, all of these suggestions are absurd. 
don't laugh at the one guy who suggests steam. You steam a turtle? That seems like a kind of a reasonable idea compared to some oh, of them. Heck. I mean, it still wouldn't work, but you know... No, I mean, it's Gamera. It wouldn't work. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is, it was a reasonable suggestion. Yeah. And people in the military are dicks. They might be. Sometimes. We love all our military listeners. <laughs> if we have any. Uh, so... Uh, this is when Gamera, or sorry, when when uh, Toshio is telling the military what to do, because he, he gets into the military establishment. He's like, don't shoot him. Stop shooting him. Gamera doesn't oh, yeah. want to be bad. He does. He's not trying to be mean. He's just partying in the geothermal place. And the best line of the movie, the professor yelling, the boy <laughs> has a point. Yes. <laughs> The boy has a point that Gamera doesn't want to be bad. <laughs> no, of course I mean, of course, yeah. The boy has a point that shooting it isn't going to do anything. Although that wasn't. But I loved. It wasn't loved what Toshio interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I love the other interpretation. Yeah. Gamera doesn't want to be bad. That's an important point. We should all consider that. <laughs> oh, did, did we? Was this before or after uh, the lighthouse scene? Oh yeah, we we totally missed the lighthouse scene because that's where that's that's the the meeting between Gamera and Toshio, of course. Yeah, yeah, Gamera. I love it because Gamera, like, they're on the cliff, or he's on the cliff. Uh, so this is right after. Turtle. Yeah, after he's let the turtle go, or has been forced to let the turtle go. Yeah, and he's and then Gamera just pokes his head up from the cl- like from under the, the cliff, like, the playing cliff. peekaboo. With this kid. Kid turns around and he's gone. I love it. And then... Uh, uh, and then Toshio goes up to the top of the lighthouse to get a better look at him or something? Or something no, no, he like just that. falls. The, the, the ground gives way on the edge of the cliff and he catches Toshio and puts him back on the lighthouse? Or is it the other way around? I can't remember uh, if he, he falls, falls off, the, off lighthouse. the lighthouse. Okay. But I don't know why he got up to the top of the lighthouse to begin I with. I don't know how he got up remember. to the... Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we later learn as Toshio, there's no how he can get into anything. If he, he wants to be on get top of the you. lighthouse, he's just yeah. on top of the lighthouse. That's and he true. falls off the lighthouse because Gamera knocked it over. Yes. Gamera did destroy the lighthouse. Uh, but then Gamera... But he also catches the kid. Yeah, he decides to save Toshio like he specifically saves him like he catches him and he puts him down and he goes away which is the only time he does anything like this in this movie it's yeah, very strange I, I I can understand though how the kid came to the conclusion that based on this that he wasn't trying to be evil he was just like like oh yeah I'm Gamera I'm Gamera oh shit I hit the light oh shit the kid oh man He's just really clumsy. Seven hundred feet tall. But which would make sense, except for when he does his big rampage. It's like he is just destroying everyone and everything now. Speaking of, my cat just knocked over a lot of stuff. I could hear it. (laughs) Yep, yep. Probably came through. Uh, She sounds like she's having a real rampage tonight. She's she's being a real gamera. Being a Gamera. Being a Gamera. <laughs> She's inspired okay, so, by the film. 
Yeah, so we we I just wanted to make sure we didn't skip that scene. Yes, yes, that yeah, was oh, very important, absolutely. Uh, so they do call off the attack, obviously, because uh, Toshio said so. Yep. <laughs> and also they know it will make Gamera stronger because he feeds on energy. Morale. Morale indeed. Uh, so we head into Operation Deep Freeze, our first failed plan. Oh, yeah. Um, this one, uh, they figure if fire doesn't work, why not freeze it? Um, makes sense. Amphibians, I believe, are cold-blooded. Yeah. Uh, and so they have developed these freeze bombs, which are effective for 10 minutes only. Right. They were going to use them for, I think, the Cold War or something, but then this came up. Yeah. Uh, and they do manage to hit him with the bombs and they knock him on his back. And they kind of immediately assume that that will kill him because, oh, well, he's on, he's on his back now. That's it. We're done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can pack up can't now. can't get back up. We can, just, we can just pack it up. Let him starve to death. They really seem content to just just let the turtle do whatever it wants after they've done the bare minimum. It's like, oh, radiation, I'll get it. Let's let's not worry anymore. Oh, he's on his back. Can't get up. Let's not worry anymore. Well, I think it's because this is a movie that was made for kids to feel smart. So they put together these things and they want the children in the audience to pick it up before the smart professor does, right? Oh, well, okay. Because like, because the kids would like anyone watching this would be able to put together and like, well, I mean, obviously that's Gamera and he can fly and, you know, we've seen him on his back and he can do those rockets. Yeah. But, you know, the and because the uh, scientists don't yet know that the UFO sightings were Gamera. Right. I was just regular UFOs. But of course, the audience knows because they saw it. So, you know, the, the kids get to get to put it together before the scientist does and makes them feel smart. So I, I feel like that's that, really cool. Yeah. And that happens a few times in the movie. There are a handful of places where you're able to get to it a good amount before them. And, and I feel like it must've been designed that way. Never thought about it that way, but that's, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so this is when Toshio is obsessively collecting all the rocks. because. <laughs> their Gamera's home. <laughs> right, because he built this little rock uh, house for... It looks for like a burial Jimmy, mound. Pee-wee, Tibby. It Tibby. does. But, you know, it's... It could also... Uh-oh. It could also be a child's... Could also be a child's... Excuse me, what was the last word? Uh, it could also be a child's version of an igloo. Oh, yeah. Maybe, uh, or a turtle shell. Well, like, it struck me as looking like a burial mound. Like, that's where he buried Tibby. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I it don't looks... want to think about it that way. Yeah, it's it's very weird. But, like, he's collecting all these rocks, and he's just carrying them around in his backpack. Because I think he believes it's Tibby's home, so maybe Gamera would want to live in it, too. I don't get his reasoning. Yeah, he's going to need a, like, maybe he's going to got to go out and get some more rocks. Like, I don't I think wonder, he has enough. I wonder if he thinks by creating this home for Gamera that he'll just shrink back down to Tibby size and everything will be okay. Or that Gamera just needs a home. Because he seems to 
he's the only one who empathizes with Gamera. He mentions it's like, yeah, it's he's hungry and he's lonely and who knows if he's right. But, you know, he's the only one who even True. presents um, an idea as to what Gamera might be thinking. Yeah, although it seems absurd because Gamera does seem to be having a pretty great time when he he's destroying so stuff. Happy. He looks so jazzed about it every time. Well, they do say that like he gets happy whenever he absorbs energy or fire or whatever. So yeah, he's he's having a blast whenever he has blasts. Yeah. Uh, so Toshio's, I think it's his cousin that they're staying with, and he throws the rocks away. He throws them into the river or something. Right. Right. And uh, Toshio gets very, very upset about it. And this is sort of where we learn about why he was collecting the rocks, I guess, because he hadn't really spoken about it before. Uh, And we start getting some background about, oh, man, the fishing industry has dried up. There's been all of these mysterious incidents of boats going down in Tokyo Bay. I don't know what could possibly be happening. And again, this is another one of those things like kids are going to put together that Gamera is hiding in Tokyo Bay before for some reason the scientists are able to (laughs) yeah well i mean like i i get why why it's written that way and i think it's interesting but it does also have the side effect of making all your science characters seem like they're idiots (laughs) well just a little bit when you make one of your science characters just look like colonel sanders i mean (laughs) yeah that guy He's sort of their version of the cool scientist with the eye patch in Godzilla. Oh. <laughs> but not as cool. Uh, so this is where they launch the Z plan, uh, which reminds me a lot of the island research plot in Watchmen. Oh, kind of. But I want to hear. The setup seems kind of similar to me. The setup seems similar. Yeah, well, like it just that they have all of these scientists working that like they've evacuated this entire island and they have all these scientists secretly working on this top secret giant plan involving a UFO. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, um, it's it's cool. It's great. that I, I love the idea of um, like American and Russian soldiers secretly having this thing that they're doing together in the middle of the Cold War when they're supposed to be hating each other and maybe they really do hate each other, but this one underground cabal, that's not really explored. No, they don't do a whole lot with it. Uh, But, you know, it is is how they deal with the plan. Uh, The Z plan does ultimately uh, work out after a few setbacks. this is where we get some Gamera spinning and blowing up shit, uh, which rules every time I see it. Uh, I, I really like him attacking the uh, airport. Oh, yeah. When, when he just spins right into the control tower. Yeah, and he gives it like a handful of passes first. Like he gives it a few close passes just to frighten him, and then he destroys it. It's great. Friend to children everywhere, but there were no children in there. Or there are no survivors. <laughs> and and this is also when he does the downtown rampage, which is probably the high water mark of the movie. Really great miniature work here. Um oh there was the bit with the rail yard too. Uh not uh, quite yet. That's after Oh no, that's, that's after right this? Af- oh, that's okay. after the downtown rampage. So the downtown rampage, like he takes out, I think, uh an elevated train. Uh he's 
destroying all sorts of buildings, like a big Tokyo hotel. Uh, oh, he hits Tokyo Tower. Tokyo Tower, of course. Uh, this is when he attacks the rock concert, and he's got the blowtorch uh, coming out of his mouth, and the, it turns everyone into a photo negative. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, because... I just love it. Like the cops were trying to get them to evacuate and they're just like, what's Gamera, man? It's a lot like the rock and roll teens in Giant Claw. It's the ones who are going to put like, salt on its tail. <laughs> right, right. I'm also thinking it's a lot like um, yeah, there's there's no giant turtle um, threatening the entire globe and, and the economy. I'm not going to like do the bare minimum to do my part to keep people safe from the giant turtle. Okay, so you, you say that like <laughs> it's it's sort of there, but in the American version, Gamera the Invincible, there yeah. is a Gamera hoaxer on the presidential cabinet. So one of the characters is a Gamera hoaxer. He doesn't believe Gamera exists, and he refuses to uh, put national funds toward it. And like he's always fighting with the president against doing anything about Gamera because Gamera is a hoax. Well, for real, some it's things never change. <laughs> I Something. couldn't believe it when I watched it a few months back. It's like, oh my god, there's a Gamera hoaxer. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> we need to see Gamera's birth certificate. Unbelievable. Uh, but they do realize about this time that if they just keep feeding Gamera fire, he'll probably just hang out and be content. Uh, so this is when we have the train yard scene where he's just hilariously dancing in place in the wrecked train yard. I mean, there's just fire all around him and explosions, and he's just dancing like like he's Raven. And he's, oh. I don't know if it's meant to be dancing, but he is dancing. Like he's swaying, he's spinning back and forth. He seems to be dancing, uh, just at least really vibing with the place. Uh, and oh, he's like... Lead. Eating a train like sausage links. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when, he, when he picks up the one train car and just tosses it like, eh. Uh, and of course, Toshio gets into this burning train yard where. That's been he, so sealed off by the military. He just like gets the entire military is there. Uh, and he gets on a petroleum car that like. It's part of the sausage link chain of trains that Gamera is eating. So he's getting pulled towards Gamera uh, and manages to survive an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> and survive Gamera lifting his car, his train and like throwing some of the cars from it. Yeah, like this, a general has to risk his life to save the kid. <laughs> oh, but the kid was in no real danger. Well, yeah, all other human characters are completely unimportant except for exposition purposes. So, like, Toshio can always get out of every situation. Yep, yep. He's the only character who matters. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is expendable. Yeah, and so, like, after he is saved from the explosion, he just disappears immediately so he can stow away for the finale to get in further peril, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we see him stow away on a crate of goods that's being sent to Plan Z, the uh, the super secret, the super secret collaborative uh, international Cold War hush hush base. This little kid just sneaks onto a crate, and now he's in the base. Yeah, like they 
they evacuated an entire Japanese island of all of the people who lived there. Uh, and he just, you know, he snuck in. That's fine. It just gets in. So ultimately, it turns out that both Gamera and a typhoon are heading for Oshima Island, uh, which is a problem because uh, they're they're hoping to attract Gamera, and the typhoon is going to blow him off course. And and uh, yeah, also realizing the typhoon would just once you know what the plan is, which we don't yet, but once you know what it is, the typhoon would just ruin that plan. Just yeah. will not work with a typhoon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and this is where we have that scene where Gamera actually looks pretty menacing, where he's just treading water and breathing fire. Looks really cool. Oh, yeah. When he's chasing after... How they lure him to this island is they just put a bunch of barrels of oil in the water and light him on fire. <laughs> right. Like and a, then it, it like ends up... Like a trail. Yeah, but it doesn't work because I think the typhoon puts it all out. Uh, uh, I think so. And then the photographer guy shows up on the island, even though he was not supposed to be there. Like, he somehow snuck in there, too, right? We've missed many scenes of him um, just inviting himself along with the scientist and the girl. Every single thing they do. But ultimately, nothing they do matters compared to everything Toshio does, which is weird. Yeah, well, the photographer matters a little bit. The photographer matters, especially right here, because he starts lighting everything on fire on the island. And at first, everyone is really mad at him. But they're like, it's like, guys, what are you, yeah. this is the plan. We need to attract Gamera here. What are you talking about? So they're like, oh, yeah. And then everybody starts lighting everything up, of course. And Gamera finally turns towards them again. Uh, I really love the underground Z-Plan bunker uh, animated mat effect. Oh, yes. That's so good. It's like, um, what movie does it immediately remind me of the first one that I always think of is forbidden planet has really great giant mats like that. Uh, this series has a lot of those, like this is the first one we get in the series, but it's a big hallmark of the series. There's some really cool ones and some later ones. I'm thinking in particular of one where they go to an alien planet with these weird cannibal lady aliens, and they have a whole bunch of different monsters and they have a whole huge alien landscape with a monorail that you get to see in these match shots and teleporters and stuff. Really fun. A monorail? A monorail. I hear those things are awfully loud. Mm, it could be. Is there, <laughs> is it possible the track might bend? <laughs> mm, no. Uh, so, the typhoon does blow Gamera off course, and then he's turned back around by the fire. Uh, and they so they they launch the Z plan, which they seal him up in a big egg. <laughs> so this part, uh, this is great. So they have they have this hole, right? And there's these all these torches around the edge of the hole uh, to lure him there. I guess the typhoon just stopped at this point. Yeah, uh, it's totally clear by this point for some reason. Yeah, because, you know, they solved that obstacle. It doesn't need to keep going. Yeah. Uh, so they, it, once he gets into the circle, uh, the ones, like, I thought this was going to be leaves over a hole. 
thought that's what the trap was going to be. I was like, he steps on it, and I'm like, this is going to be leaves over a hole. This is just going to be a hole. They just dig a giant hole, and he's going to fall in, and that's going to be it. <laughs> and I'm not that, that be, far off. It's it's a little bit more. Cause it's a little it's bit so, more. So two big, uh, like a, a giant metal egg basically encases him, and they blast it off to Mars. Uh, did they say that it's to Mars at this point? Uh, they do. At some point, they do mention that he's going to Mars now and he's going to die there. Okay, because it's to cause future problems because there are Martians and obviously he's going to come back with aliens who are like, "What the hell are you polluting our planet? They're sending monsters our way. This isn't fair." I think that's what the sequel is, or maybe that's one of the Godzilla sequels where. Oh, no, yeah, I think that's actually how Mecha Godzilla starts. <laughs> Space is like, why are you sending monsters at us? Take our, take this monster, you jerks. <laughs> well, it, it very obviously sets up a sequel because Look, their whole thing is like, Gamera's gone and he'll just die on his own now. Like all the other times he would just <laughs> die on his own. Of course, yeah. Sooner or later, you guys are going to have to deal with Gamera. But well, not at the end of this movie. Yeah, I, I uh, it's it's pretty cartoony, but it's very fun cartoony. And then we oh, have a quick it. we we have a quick check in with every single human character. They're all standing in a convenient row for the camera to pan across. <laughs> I don't remember any of them really, except for creepy reporter and Toshio and Doctor Colonel Sanders. Yeah, and I don't I... even know what Doctor Colonel Sanders' deal was. Uh, I think that's Professor Morase. Uh, and he came up with some plan that did like, I think he came up with the plan that didn't work. The freeze freeze bomb plan. Well, maybe he was, well, he, he was involved in the Z plan. So, the, I, okay. I think they didn't say this, but I think they, once they sealed him in the egg, they had to, they must've used the freeze bombs inside the egg. Otherwise oh, he would have yeah. just broken right out. In theory, unless it's in, just a really strong thing. But then, that, oh no, now I'm thinking about how much energy would be used, because you can't use really heavy metals if you're going to send it up into space, but yeah. you're already sending Gamera, who is not Incredibly light. Incredibly heavy, yeah, must weigh like, thousands of tons. Shoot. Versus, okay. But yeah, Gamera definitely weighs like thousands of tons, there's no way. <laughs> Uh, we don't have the technology to launch something that big into space, but maybe. But if we had gotten together and put aside our differences in the Cold War and just done the Z plan, we could have sent a giant turtle into space, and the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and everything up until now could be so much better. Mm hmm. Uh, until but, yeah. the turtle comes back. Until the turtle comes back. Uh, and of course, the turtle does come back very quickly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I can't. I I can't wait to see it when it does. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I think this is less fun than most Gamera movies. So, like, if you enjoyed this one, you'll really like the series because this is them pretty restrained. They just get sillier and weirder each time from here on out. <laughs> And yeah. and more children aimed as it goes, like both weirder and more violent, but aimed toward children. So like the the, 
they're very gory in a weird way, like the actual monster fights. Because, like, they'll have all sorts of weird special powers. There's one guy who has throwing stars who just that, that just, like, fire out of his head. And one guy who just has a giant knife as, like, his body is a huge knife. And he just saws through other monsters. It's oh, my awesome. God. That sounds, <laughs> this sounds amazing. It's such a fun series. They have the weirdest monsters of any other kaiju series. Well, I want more of this. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, So this was initially going to be a giant rat movie. Like, this started out, like, Daie were trying to get into the giant monster business, and they started this giant rat movie, but it fell through. And this is just sort of like, uh, uh, they, they sort of built it based on what they had for assets from the giant rat movie. So that's what a lot of the miniatures and stuff originally come from. Oh, okay. Interestingly enough. Uh, but yeah, uh, I don't know. Any f- last thoughts on, uh, Gamera? Yeah. Do we want to talk about the box set? Oh, absolutely. I want to talk about the box set. Oh yeah. The... To me, I thought you were handing me like a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, hardcover book. Yeah. And it's only half the set. Cause there's also a, a, a hardcover book of all of the Gamera comics oh, uh, and man. a big map. Uh, so yeah, this map? is the arrow set. Yeah, a map with for all of the different uh, kaiju. <laughs> oh man, it's bad. Yeah, so so the DVD or the Blu-ray, whatever it is, box uh, <laughs> looks like a hardcover book. Yeah, it's gigantic, and it's got like this awesome artwork of like Gamera on the front shooting out fire, and then you can also see flying in the background Gamera in his turtle shell. Uh, with the fire spinning, fusing with the fire that's shooting out of the foreground Gamera's mouth. And there's some other stuff that I'm sure will make more sense if I see more of the series. Uh, there's bats. Uh, yeah, I think those are uh, the Gauss, uh, which is in this series, the Gauss or Gauss is one guy, but in the reboot series in the 90s which is really good like they kind of reboot it and made it more serious but like stick with all of the really weird stuff and the genetic engineering uh and they're actually great uh so in those ones the gauss are a race of like ancient pterodactyl bats and they're gigantic too but there's hundreds of them it's pretty cool and the artwork, like it, it looks like Dungeons and Dragons artwork. Mm-hmm, totally. It's, uh, it's... And uh, the set is awesome. Like in in terms of special features, like for just this disc alone, there's a huge amount of like documentary stuff. There's commentary tracks. There's uh, the alternate version of Gamera the Invincible. Just everything. It's it's really jam packed. It's a great set it's it's really cool yeah so like uh i i think the the original box like this version is out of print but you can get all of the separate like you can get it in i think two separate sets now or maybe three separate sets that that are like broken up by eras of gamera because like this first one was just like a limited set but yeah it's super cool uh so anything more before we uh move on uh, to our next section I think we're good on Gamera. All right. Uh, 
All right, so uh, moving on. All right, so for our second section, uh, we uh, hung out a couple nights ago and we watched a couple things that we want to uh, briefly talk on before uh, we get to our second feature of the thing. Uh, so first of them, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, we need, we need to talk a little bit about these. They, they're kind of... At least briefly. We we may cover yeah. them in more detail later on. So we we won't go through like a full plot synopsis, but a few thoughts on both of these. So first, Champagne and Bullets. Now, I th- that title is not what the movie is about at all. No, I mean, there is champagne and there are bullets. Yeah, but they're just kind of tangential. That's not really what the movie's about. But you know what? If you asked me what the movie was about, I couldn't really tell you. Um, uh, Wingshauser. It, Wingshauser is so good in Champagne. He does an incredibly convincing, convincing performance as a drunk. I don't know how he does it, but I believed that that man was drunk for 100% of the time. Yeah, it's very convincing, like almost it's too so convincing. convincing. Potentially, <laughs> potentially <laughs> not acting in in all of those sequences. Uh, he is fantastic, though. Like he is so interesting and so weird. Like he develops a religion based on Huck Finn in the background of this movie. <laughs> in the background, <laughs> just like sort of behind the scenes. <laughs> Until, like, at some point, he's just dressed up as Huck Finn for the climax of the movie. And, like, wait a sec, what is going on here? Yeah, uh, that's not even really an important part of the movie. It just kind of happens. No, it's just background. He meets up with a nun when he ends up in, in the hospital after getting shot. Yeah, something like that. He... Got oh yeah, no, shot after being convicted of right. Murder. No, he he because he got shot. He, I feel like he got shot a couple times because he gets shot the first time in the opening drug raid by uh, William Smith, John DeHart, and Wingshauser are our three guys. And John DeHart, it's his vanity project, and it is really a vanity project. It, it's like. Um... If Tommy was so from the room also did the music. Mm-hmm. And it is very room-esque in terms of how much of a, a vanity project it is. Like it, it feels very much like it came from one person's mind alone. Yeah. And then I think Wingshauser just got freaking wasted just so he could handle this project. Like, he seems to be having a pretty good time. Like, Wingshauser will appear in your movie, it seems like. He's been in, like, I, I've been reading uh, this book, Bleeding, the, the most recent Bleeding Skull Anthology, which is their book on mostly 90s shot on video, extremely obscure uh, VHS garbage. And he shows up in some of that stuff, too. Like, this is a dude who will be in movies. Like, he loves to work, I guess. We should see if we can get him on the show. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, so this is John DeHart's movie, and he is, he's like uh, if your uncle were an action star. Not even an action star. If your uncle thought he was an action star? Yeah, like, he's, th- there are some very gross 
uh, sex scenes or makeout scenes that you just don't that they go on forever and they always oh, have so long. They always have him singing on the soundtrack, usually the, doing a duet with the so girl. Bad. Sex scene and it's so bad. The songs uh, are the, the lyrics are terrible. Oh. I'm having sex with you with a movie about me. They're not that much better than that. There's a bunch of them. I mean, the shimmy slide is the one that's kind of fun, and it plays again over the end credits. I think it plays like three or four times in the movie because it's the one he performs on stage. Uh, right, in that, while in the, his girl is getting harassed by the goons, he, right. he finishes the song. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a real performer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's I, the absolute best part of the movie during a sex scene. When they they also have champagne, of course. Uh, they're they're making out, and he reaches to put the the champagne off screen, and you can see a hand reach into the frame <laughs> to take it from him. <laughs> yeah, so I like to imagine that it's because this is on their honeymoon. I like to imagine it's the bellboy uh, <laughs> from the hotel. Like, can I go now, sir? I I took your champagne. I'll make sure it doesn't spill. Can I please go now? Making out with the girl in the room while the bellboy watches. Champagne and bullets, a dangerous game. <laughs> you make it sound too cool. It's not that cool. It's it's not that cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, it is an intensely bad movie. Like most people have not seen movies as bad as Champagne and Bullets. <laughs> right? That's, I think that's fair to say. I, I want to say, like, the writing has... I, I almost want to say the movie has no redeeming qualities, but that's not true. Because you got Wingshauser just doing whatever the fuck he wants, it seems. Uh, you have William Smith, uh, who was, what it was, a Daryl Seveno from Seven Way Back that we covered. Drew, Drew Seveno. But Drew yeah. Seveno as the cop judge cult leader okay right yeah he's a so he's a crooked cop with them at the start and and they do this not a real drug bust like they they're attacking drug dealers so (laughs) william smith as normad uh so he can normad bro normad bro uh and he steals all the drugs so he can sell them but then he pins it on the two of them somehow that's what the whole movie is about but and then i i it's unclear how much time has passed but in like the over the course of like a year or two he has gone from being a police officer to becoming a judge which is not how the career paths work there yeah like he's he's a street level police officer too like participating in the drug raids you don't yeah, you got it. It's completely insane. It doesn't make any sense. And he's also the leader of a satanic cult that murders babies. For unknown reasons, they don't get power from it or anything. Yeah, you know, the satanic cult, I never really got what any of their deal was. Uh, they just needed to be very evil so that he could get even. Right, right. Against them. <laughs> 
it's it's more famous title of course is get even or get even uh, all one word uh, and it's also known as Road to Revenge. This movie has a bunch of titles. It had a bunch of different VHS releases, I guess. None of them really are what the movie's about. I mean, Gedevin is close. Yeah, I mean, there's revenge. He yeah. he goes for some revenge. Eventually. Uh, so we won't get too much more into it. I, I think we'll move on to Serenity uh, shortly after this. I would say generally Champagne and Bullets is a recommend if you're into very bad movies. But because if you're not. If you're not, you're going to want to avoid it because it, it is. Yeah. It is bad. Like, it is a hard watch. <laughs> yeah, it's not even really, like, it's not so bad it's good like The Room is. It has it's, moments it's, where it's it so bad. It has moments, but and mostly it's just bad. Like, it's fascinatingly bad. It's compellingly bad. And I'm totally looking forward to checking out the other two versions of it that are included. Uh, this is the Vinegar Syndrome disc. Uh, and I totally will watch the other two cuts at some point, but... You need to space them out because, boy, whoo, <laughs> it's it's something to sit through. It's a real experience. Uh, much better watched with friends than on your own, though. Oh, God, if I wouldn't be able to do it on my own. <laughs> so the other movie we watched on Sunday was Serenity, which is not the Joss Whedon one, but the uh, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway vehicle from 2018, I believe it is. Oh, yeah, right. That's Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway with a very strange blonde. I think it's a wig rather than a dye job. I think it's the only time I've seen her blonde and it's not the right look for her. It seems yeah. weird. Yeah. So uh, would you like to begin talking about Serenity? This okay, is the first time you've so, seen it. I've, I've watched it like three times now. Um. All right. So Matthew McConaughey is a fisherman um, who's trying to catch the big one, the big, great super tuna boss you know the big one justice um justice that's what it's the called fish named justice uh, yep so he takes people out on these fishing tours to make money that's how he makes ends meet but like if the fish the big one shows up he's like no guys i'm catching this one and then he pisses off all the tourists and then he kind of loses fires his first mate um look the whole thing's a video game yeah, so like he doesn't fire, or he, he. The thing with his first mate, and he's really mean to his first mate. Uh, he's played, really mean to him. This guy has done nothing wrong. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. He's it's it's totally uh you go away. I I don't need you anymore. Cause like he he's oh, trying to yeah, get him to do. Cause uh, he he has to. He can't afford to pay him anymore. Essentially, because he's alienated all of his business. That's, uh. So, yeah, so, it is a video game. Uh, spoilers, but, like, it's better going in knowing that it's a video game because it's a lot more fun. Yeah, you know, I, I don't... I don't know if I... I don't know if I... I'm curious how I would have felt not knowing that, though. Because the, the twist is so badly deployed and so late. Because it's crazy how long it gets to the twist. When there is a lot of back and forth before we get to the twist. And there's because, so much uh, stuff that is total nonsense before you get to the twist. Yeah. So Anne Hathaway is trying to hire the fisherman to take her shitty husband out onto the water and kill him. Yeah. And the whole movie, like this happens in probably the first 10 minutes. 
then the whole rest of the movie is him going back and forth. Do I want to kill this guy? Do I not want to kill this guy? Despite uh, this guy being objectively the worst human being, just unbelievably horrible. Every second, like everything he says, everything he does, he's just absolutely awful in every way. Yep. So then, uh, so then. Oh, did we mention, did we mention that this guy and Anne Hathaway is his ex and this guy is the stepfather to, uh, uh, McConaughey's son. Yeah. Yeah. Also McConaughey's dead. Yeah. Although we don't learn that until the very end. Uh, although it's strongly hinted at a number of times because again, like this movie doesn't get to its twists until you've guessed them like an hour previous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, the, the twist is that, that McConaughey is a character, but he's real. Like he is living artificial intelligence who, that is able to have an existential crisis. And he, comes to realize he is in this video game created by his potentially autistic son. I think we're supposed to get a, some, some somewhere on the spectrum. I think we it's don't supposed learn to be the idea. The we really don't get much from him other than he is very good at coding, like kind of very gifted at coding, but kind of shut off from the world for everything else. Well, I would be too if I had to live with what that kid has to live with. Absolutely. Like the, the Jason Clark character is unbelievably awful. Uh, the moment we meet him, he shows up to make Anne Hathaway take her clothes off so he can examine her butt in very close detail for any kind of scratch or abrasion. Like he's so gross. It's. He's relentlessly gross and he's meant to be relentlessly gross. So the deck is really stacked towards uh, McConaughey killing him. And it seems like McConaughey takes too much convincing to kill him. I don't know. Well, like first he shows you're asking. Oh, well, okay. Sorry. You're right. Uh, This is his kid that he's talking about. No, you're right. He should be just for starters. He should be just tossing this guy over the boat immediately. Well, not only that, in the very first scene we see Matthew McConaughey, he almost gets into a knife fight with people who have hired him to give them a boat tour because he wants to catch this fish instead of them. Oh, right. He's unhinged. So, like, he is willing to stab paying customers, but this guy who is brutally beating his ex-wife and son seems to be a pedophile is clearly involved in some sort of criminal enterprise is constantly extremely uh rude to him like i don't see why he's not going after this guy there there seems to be no reason why he wouldn't but it sort of also seems to be within the rules of the game uh, and um, the rules of the game is my favorite character in the movie yeah he, he's like this uh little he's like if agent smith was an acme salesman yeah he just keeps showing up too late to get to mcconaughey and so like the rules keep missing him somehow oh oh interesting uh but yeah it's it's really cool it's a really fun like (laughs) 
this movie sounds pretty absurd and it is this was a big flop it it's weird it doesn't totally work but it's fascinating yeah it's really watchable it's watchable it's interesting um yeah uh the real twist is what the character ends up deciding to do at the end and i think that's the thing that can get spoiled that could potentially right. be a yeah, spoiler. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, uh, and so. I think it, it's an interesting movie that's sort of about mental illness. It's sort of about video games. It's sort of about alternate realities. It's about a whole lot of different things. And I think it maybe overreached what it was able to do, but it's really I, fun. I think so. I, I, I agree with you there. Because, like, um, it's... Some of the stuff just seems a little bit too much, especially with... Just everything piled on Anne Hathaway. I, I feel like her character is kind of grossly mistreated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it's a really fun watch, no matter what. Like, it, it's dumb, but it's so watchable. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a recommend. Just don't go in expecting a masterpiece. Just go in expecting to see Matthew McConaughey do McConaughey shit. Oh, yeah, and you get to see his butt a lot. Uh, he's naked oh, yeah. a lot in this movie. <laughs> he likes mm-hmm. to do naked cliff diving, which, oof, that must hurt. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our second feature, The Thing. Uh, I would put this in my top five movies of all time, very likely. Probably at least top ten. It's pretty good. Um, I liked it quite a bit. I had so much trouble keeping track of who was where and who was the monster and who wasn't. That's sort of intentional. And you're who you're not supposed who and, to. You're, you're yeah. kind of not supposed to be able to tell who is. And there are just enough characters that you're not able to really keep track of all of them. And that's totally by design. Okay. All right. Well, so. Oh, please, please go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess there are a lot more characters in this one than there are in your, like, say, um, Alien, which this kind of reminds me of to a, to an extent. It's a similar idea in that you're in this isolated thing, place where nobody's coming to get you, and you're trapped with this thing that thing. can just go around and kill you. Um, the th- and could be anywhere at any time. Yeah, um, where this thing is different from the alien, of course, is that this one can take the form of a person, sort of. Well, it sometimes. completely can. It, it no, totally, it can. It just if takes it has a while. time to do it. Yeah. Yeah, or the form of a dog, or the form of. Well, we Any? only see it, anything, or the it, form it, of a vile, hor- creepy spider, oh. dog person face monstrosity. Uh, like when it turns into a giant monstrosity a couple different times in the movie are definitely my favorite effects maybe ever like of any effect ever like just the the spider head effect is unbelievable like it looks so unbelievably good even now like it's like this this movie came out in 1982 it is 2021 and that is still an unmatched practical effect put this on my list of things that would look like shit in cgi oh absolutely and it did look shit in cgi when they did the remake or well it's a remake it's sort of a it's a prequel so it's what happened at the norwegian camp but it's mostly a remake 
And initially they were happened in their region. We do know exactly. But they, so they did that as a movie, but they were initially trying to do it with practical effects, but then the studio didn't like the practical effects and they just wiped them all out and put in CT. I'd love to see the original practical effects version of the thing. uh, 2011. I think it was 2011. Cause it's not bad. That's not that long. No, it's not terrible, but it's not very good. And it's obviously nowhere near this one. And it just, it, there's no point to it. Like, like you said, we know what happened in the Norwegian camp because we get that in this movie. Basically. Yeah, it's, we solved that mystery. Yeah. I like how the opening kind of plays with your loyalties because we have the Norwegian hunter or no, Norwegian helicopter hunting the dog. Oh yeah. The dog, our protagonist. Um, Okay, so if you look on does I haven't looked on it, but I figure if you look on does the dog die.com, I think the answer would just be a bunch of question marks. Uh, some of the dogs die for sure. Some of the dogs <laughs> die for sure. Uh, but our main dog, eh, I don't know. I think what's definitely well, yeah, that that's sort of the thing. Uh, parts of this thing die. Uh, this this aspect eventually is taken out. Uh, but so the, these, all of these opening shots, and it's quite a while before we have any dialogue, just have in the Arctic again, we, we open again in the Arctic, both of our movies tonight and Uh, Antarctic this time. Oh, that's right. It's Antarctic in this one. Yeah. Uh, and you've, you've got all the snow, you've got just a helicopter and you have a Husky that's running away from this helicopter. They're trying to shoot it. And we have no idea why. We don't know what this is about. And they, the dog finds its way to their camp, uh, to the American camp. Yep, and the, and the Norwegian helicopter buzzes it around, buzzes around a few times before deciding to land and get out to the, approach the American camp with their guns. Right, except one of them pulls out an explosive and he accidentally blows up himself in the helicopter. <laughs> Pretty much right away. Right away, immediately, yeah. Uh, and the other one heads into camp with his gun, and you obviously don't want to do that. He gets killed by the commander of the camp pretty much immediately. And this seals their doom, essentially. Uh, and they don't really consider why these guys were after the dog. I mean, they talk about it. It's like, why were they trying to shoot that dog? You know, go stir crazy already the first week of winter? Yeah, because yeah, that's a thing that happens in Antarctica. Just oh, yeah. People. Sure. But, but yeah, they say it's like, well, that's that's not nearly long enough. They just started out being there. Yeah, they've only been up here for like a couple weeks, so it seems absurd. Uh, and they just kind of let the dog into their camp and it just sort of joins the camp and it's hanging out for the whole day. We see it watching them. We see it like getting an idea of who all of them are and like it's hanging out in all of their living areas instead of where the rest of the dogs are. Mm -hmm. And nobody's really noticing anything until, until much later. Right. I mean, it's just a dog, so they don't think about it. Uh, so McCready, our Kurt Russell character, who's great in this, just so good. Uh, he ta- he's the helicopter pilot for the camp, and he takes the helicopter to go investigate the Norwegian camp, and they find horrors. Yeah, they find oh, they find so much stuff. 
There's this big burned thing. So this is our first monstrosity, which clearly has human faces as part of it. Faces. Faces. And well, they're it's like kinda one stretched. face, it's kinda two. There's yeah. sort of together. It's gross. It's stretched and bisected, and also it's burnt. Like it's out in the snow and it has been uh torched. Yeah. Which uh turns out is I don't know if it's the way to deal with the thing, but it's the way that everybody uses. It seems to be the only thing that they know how to destroy it with. Like, it, it is one way they're able to harm it, and they don't know of any others. Because it yeah, seems... Yeah, they don't have time to this. Yeah. Like, I think probably fire is one of the only things that can do anything to it because... It's the only thing that actually destroys it on a molecular level that like it, it or not molecular, but it like it burns up its cells. It, it actually destroys the cells individually, whereas most stuff, it's just going to scatter them like you can chop it to bits, but that doesn't matter. And yeah, can, that wouldn't work. Yeah. You're like right. if you shoot it, it's just going to be in more pieces. Yeah, I guess fire would be the only thing like if they had time to study it or anything, I'm sure they could develop a compound. These guys couldn't, but somebody could. Yeah, like some sort of acid, maybe. But what? But, but in terms of the stuff available to them, torches are probably their best bet. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Thinking about it, that's really about the only thing that would work. Yeah. Uh, so they bring the burned thing back to the base. I, like, what else do they find in the Norwegian camp? Like, I, they they take some tapes and they take them back yeah. to study them and figure out they, what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they take the thing, they take the tapes, they find that uh, they find the one guy whose like throat is cut wide and his wrists are all cut. Right. Um, there's nobody alive at the camp. Oh, they find the big block of ice, uh, mm-hmm. the ice bathtub or whatever. Yeah, in, in like th- that seems to be where they pulled this thing out of or something. Yeah, or maybe yeah. where they were keeping it. I don't know. It, uh, they don't know either. Right. Uh, I really love uh, Wilford Brimley as Blair doing the autopsy on the thing. Oh, yeah. It's like, do an autopsy. And you just look at it it's like, where the fuck do you start? And I like, it's really great effects. Again, like all of the effects are so good in this movie. And just, I love Wilford Brimley and him just, Oh my goodness! Oh, well, look at that! What a thing is this? <laughs> his his very uh, kind of mild uh, response to just oh my goodness! I cannot believe what I'm looking at. <laughs> I, I love him in this movie. He's my second favorite part of it because, like, especially when he's when he starts to become unhinged later on, he's really oh, funny. Oh yeah, he he's funny. He's good when he's unhinged. Oh no, I'm okay now. I'm okay. I'm, I'm all better now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would I'm not like try to come to back you. inside. I, I would like uh, to come back inside, please. <laughs> so then, I, I think it's after this they're like, okay, why is this dog still doing out here, just in our quarters? Put this in the kennel with the other dogs, uh, which is bad for the dogs, but ultimately a pretty good decision for them because it uh, gives them warning where maybe the Norwegians didn't have that and it oh, got yeah. to them first because yeah, so please. What I find interesting is that the, 
the dog spent the most time with uh, the one guy, the dog guy. Yeah. But never took over that guy. Clark. I yeah, I know that that's always the strangest thing to me that and and he seems weird too. Like he acts funny for a lot yeah. of the movie. Like when he's taking this dog to uh the kennel, he seems to act weird. He's he's just a weird dude, I guess. I guess so. Well, that that does get addressed in a way. Well, and I of. think I think as well one of the interesting things about this movie and the way it's set up because we have all of these people that we're not sure if we can trust. Also, we've never been able to meet them. We we don't have we we haven't spent time with them to understand how they normally act. So we don't yeah. know if they're acting funny. Yeah, yeah, for most of cuz they're already in the middle of not being able to get in touch with anybody on their radios for at least two weeks, which, mm-hmm. which, which so they're already completely they're isolated. already in um, um, we'll say compromise. They're already not yeah. at their best. Right. They're not normal. Uh, so they put the dog in the kennel, and it turns into. A dog thing. The skin peels back from its its face like a banana and it just like opens up and just tentacles start coming out of it everywhere. It, it, it like sucks the other like pulls the other dogs towards it or like stabs one of them. And well, like and it starts it, it starts consuming them and assimilating them. Yeah, that's what's happening. Like I feel like it's it's putting out these tendrils that it's inserting into them and it, they're becoming it. Right, right. Like I'm not really sure what the process is exactly because we never see the process. We just see the process fail a couple times. Yeah, like these people – that's the thing. We don't get to understand anything about the thing because nobody here gets a chance to study it and nobody here would be able to figure out figure it out if they could. Whereas mm-hmm. in, say, Alien, you have the one guy who already knows about the alien, and eventually you find out about it from him. Right. Uh, so they do another autopsy on the dog thing. <laughs> and, I, I just love they've got, like, this medical table, and it's just this big pile of meat and bone Just this there. burnt mass that looks terrifying. Like... Oh, horrible thing. <laughs> it's too big for the table it's on. Yeah. And and this is where Blair realizes it's able to imitate other organisms and that it can potentially imitate any organism, uh, which makes makes them understand what the other thing that they found, like the burn thing that they found in the Norwegian camp and like how it's this weird stretched human face. And that- and now they decide suddenly they want to try to sift through the Norwegian, the nine hours of Norwegian tapes they found. Yeah. Uh, and they find that, like, OK, these guys turned up what seems to be an alien ship. Uh, and Blair starts putting it together and doing the math like this could thing could probably assimilate the entire planet in like two years. Uh, so this cannot get back to civilization. Oh, yeah, right. The opening shot of the whole movie is this uh, Enterprise-looking saucer. Oh, yeah, uh, I just, that. that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
I forgot too. I always forget that there's like space at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, but but it looks like the saucer section from the Enterprise, uh, just flying towards Earth. Huh. And and of course it is this saucer that the Norwegians uncovered uh, in yeah. the ice. Uh, and it's just been hibernating until someone found it all of this time. And it's it's unclear how long it's been there. It could have been there for thousands of years. They, they, hypothes- they hypothesize about 10,000 years yeah. because of the age of the ice that it was buried under. Right. Uh, so around this point, I think Bennings gets assimilated, but his assimilation doesn't get completed. Uh, he's... I can't remember which guy this is. Uh, okay, I, I don't know how to describe him. I can't remember the name of the actor, but he's the one who, when when Windows the gets guy? yeah the red haired guy, uh, bald on top and red on the sides. And when they get to him, semi assimilated, he's almost himself, but his hands are all giant and fucked up. Yeah, and he just and makes he can't this talk. Sound like oh, I've been found out, but he, he doesn't say this, that. Yeah, he just makes this horrible noise. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they they rush it out in the snow and torch it. Uh-huh. Uh, that thing is like the hands, the effect of the hands, really cool and creepy. Uh, uh-huh. This guy who's almost a complete person as a thing. Uh, very, very cool. Cool body horror idea. Uh, yeah. And then Blair freaks out. Blair snaps. That's uh, Brimley's character. So oh, he, the one who, the, the doctor who's like, who figures out what the thing does. Yeah, and who did the autopsies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Wilfred Brimley. And he just goes and he starts destroying stuff. He he wrecks all the vehicles. He kills the rest of the dogs. He destroys the radio. Uh, and at this point, I'm unclear. I Like, I feel at this point he is still human. It's after this he gets assimilated because he definitely does get assimilated later. He does get assimilated, but yeah, it's hard to say if he is at this point or not. I'm pretty sure he's not, because when he's destroying the radio is when he's screaming, it's trying to become us. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. His whole thing is he wants to make sure that the the thing, at this point anyways, that the thing never gets out of this base into the rest of the world. Yeah, he he wants to just keep this from reaching humanity, and he is willing to sacrifice himself and everyone else to make sure that happens. Uh, but it's not a good idea because he should be warning them. But you know, he's crazy. Yeah, he's lost his mind, obviously, uh, and they yeah. have to bundle him up and put him in an outbuilding because they don't know what to do with him. Uh, so they just yeah, put him in a shack. Shed. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out there were tools in the tool shed. But we'll, we'll get to well, that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so there's Fuchs. They they find him to, like, I think he burns himself to avoid assimilation. Like, they find him burned up, and it seems like he probably did it because the the thing was about to get him. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and uh, about the same time. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was having so much. Yeah, I could not keep track of who was who and... This is a part where, like, just everything is happening pretty chaotically. Uh, a, a lot of different people are moving in different directions. There's people are broken up into little different teams to figure out what's going on. And then, like, teams split up and converge off screen uh, sometimes. 
Right, but, and intentionally because we we have to lose track of them, so it's possible that any of them could be the thing for us as the audience. Yeah, because it takes yeah. a really long time for the thing. Like it, they they say, it seems to take about an hour for the thing to assimilate someone. So they need to be broken up, and they need to all be out of our understanding for a while to potentially be the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nalls finds some torn clothes with McCready's name on them. McCready being Kurt Russell's character. Yeah. Uh, so this is when they start to think he's been assimilated. Uh, but he is not. Uh, it's like, I guess th- whoever is the thing at this point, like tore up some of his clothes and put them out in the snow to make it look like it. There's, I think at this point, there's a couple of the things. There must be. Yeah. Uh, well, Norris definitely is the thing at this point. Uh, and, and we, he is revealed as the thing very shortly. Uh, but I, I guess also I, I f- we forgot to mention that the torn clothes are an important thing because they can tell that someone has become the thing because of the torn clothes, because it seems to just tear through the clothes uh, when it assimilates you. Yeah. And because it'll be torn to bits. Yeah. And because this is like a, a military thing, they're all going to have their names on their clothing. Right. Exactly. Uh, but so McCready. To get back in he breaks in through a window he keeps them at bay with dynamite uh to oh yeah he see at this point he seems like he's gone on head unhinged too right but he's just trying to keep them from killing him uh while he can still prove that he's not the thing he he puts some pretty good sound arguments to it too he's like i know i'm not the thing if you were all the thing then you'd rush me immediately so some of you at least are not the thing Right. And it's very sound reasoning. And his logic does bring him through a lot of this. Uh, And so Norris, uh, he's the larger guy with the really frizzy hair. Uh, And he he seems to have a heart attack. So he falls over. (laughs) Seems to. uh, And the doctor goes to use the defibrillator on him and his chest opens up into jaws and bites the doctor's arms off. Yeah. (laughs) Such a great effect. So cool. It it looks like, like he puts the paddles on, but it looks like he just pushes too hard. It goes through the chest. Cause it just opens up like a mouth and then just clamps shut again. Yeah. Just, and then just both bit both of his arms off. And it pretty much kills him immediately. They're screaming and they, they have to torch the mass of that guy because, like, he starts, you know, thinging out yeah, thinging <laughs> the out. way they do. Uh, so they, they burn that. That's when we get the spider head effect, which is so cool. Because, like, so uh, Norris's head is hanging off the edge of the table and it melts off his neck from the fire and then sprouts spider legs upside down like the head is upside down and it starts crawling and, around and like these two little eye stalks yeah from, eye like stalks the top out of the bottom shit. of its head Ooh. like it's Ooh. so gross looking and it's so crazy looking uh but amazing like it's a really good effect oh yeah kind of like oh i wonder if that the um in toy story the evil kid 
who uh, Sid. who abuses his toys, and he has like the upside down baby with the spider legs. Uh, I wonder well, no, if that's it's not upside down in the movie, but it oh. could totally because it's it's uh, that spider baby. I think it's is a, the name it's of the a head with it's a baby head with spider legs. Yeah, like and a baby it, head, and it's mechan uh, mechano set spider legs. Yeah, I think something yeah. like that. Yeah, I watched well, these movies like, a few months back. Yeah, I wonder if that could be inspired by this. Totally could be. I mean, like, this movie is unbelievably influential. It was not successful when it came out. Like, this was, I think this is John Carpenter's only flop. Or maybe, like, his biggest flop this at the time. Flopped. No, this was not a successful movie. Uh, oh, shit. It, it was both a critical and commercial failure. Uh, but then, like, a couple years later, it's like, wait, isn't this movie a masterpiece? And yeah, it, it came around really quick, uh, but f- it, like it, it was just too gross. Uh, when, when it came out, everyone was like, "Ooh, that's disgusting!" Uh, and it this is, was the same but... year as ET. People wanted nice oh. aliens. So yeah, I, I, the nihilism of it, I think, was a big problem for people, especially in '82. Uh, but mm. yeah, it came around fast and it became a classic. But this movie was banned in Britain until the end of the '90s. Oh wow. uh so at this point as well clark the dog guy lunges at mccready with a knife and he shoots him because he thinks he's a thing and they take some of his blood and do a blood test later and learn that he was not a thing so keith david is like so oh so he wasn't a thing so you're just a murderer then which is true which is true but i think that's pretty interesting to have our our main protagonist good guy character uh does kill a regular person cold blood yeah well not cold blood really it's not right yeah they don't usually they don't do that in these movies so that yeah (laughs) that was a thing it's like it's a dark twist yeah yeah, i thought that was pretty cool but it does also seem that clark is unstable he has been acting weird the whole movie he's been the one guy who seems strange he's the one guy who seemed like he was a thing all the way yeah, but like somehow every time I watch this movie, it surprises me when they say he wasn't a thing. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like you're finally gonna get the the makes sense cut. <laughs> uh, so from the way the spider head detached and got away, uh, they theorize that every cell of the thing is independent and can operate on its own. Right. So. So part of the test is that every cell will react, will, um, pardon me, will react, yeah, if it's put under stress. So, like, you could theoretically take the blood of someone infected, and what they do is they heat up this wire um, to, yeah. uh, to like, like scorch the blood to provoke the thing. Yeah, so they collect a little bit of everyone's blood in Petri dishes and label each and every one of them, and they have all but... I think it's McCready and one other guy, or maybe McCready has everyone tied up at first. Um, the the Windows guy, the oh, first windows. one who passes the test, doesn't get tied up. Right. Uh, uh, so he he and McCready hold a, a blowtorch on everybody else, and they start testing the blood. Yeah. Um. So who ends up being the first one? Uh, I can't remember who the first one. It it turns out Palmer is the one who's infected. 
uh, and I can't remember which which dude that is. But Palmer is the only there's only one guy who's infected here at this point. Yeah, uh, it's really cool because like when he touches it, the blood like turns into a fleshy thing and jumps up. Yeah, it like reacts and then immediately Palmer just explodes. Like he starts oh, shaking. He was the stoner guy. Oh yes, that's right. He's the stoner dude. Uh, but like yeah, he he explodes. He he just starts shaking and shivering and like he does get windows. Windows gets a similar or gets killed in this fracas. Uh-huh. Uh, but they take out both of them and then they know that the remaining few people here are not the thing now. <laughs> right. So, but there's somebody they're forgetting. Well, they, they do go to test Blair. Yep. Uh, Blair out in the outbuilding. They go to see where he is, but he has broken out of the building. And, and he's been up to some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he, using the tools in the tool shed and uh, all the gear and stuff that he got from sabotaging the equipment and the helicopters and the and all the other stuff, he's building a spaceship under the tool shed. Yeah, he's got his own little flying saucer there. He's not even close to being done, but he has got a lot done in the three hours that he's been there. More than you'd figure someone would, yeah. Yeah, like like considering he had to dig out that whole room, too. Exactly. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, very interesting. Like, clearly, at some point, he has become assimilated, uh, but it's it's totally unclear at what point. And we, we forgot to mention there are a couple points where they go to talk to him in between when he's in the shed that are really fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because there's a point where he's like, I'm ready to come inside now. He's like, I, I, w- I would like to come back inside. Uh, I, I I feel like I'm not going to cause any problems and I, I'm OK now. <laughs> and I don't know if he's the thing then, but he probably is by that point. I feel like he is because there's something about the way he talks. It's just a little off. Yeah, but it's well, hard to say. <laughs> yeah, like a little inconsistent with how he was acting before, but. It's hard but he, to say. Yeah, we it's never hard met to say. these people outside of crisis. And he's also, like, experienced a psychotic break. Like, he, we saw him really go crazy. And at that point, we're pretty sure he's not the thing. Because he's very anti the thing while he's doing it. Um. So, at this point, everybody's trying to run around and solve this. So, like, they're they're going to blow up the whole base. Yeah. Because uh, McCready's like, the thing is going to go into hibernation to wait for a rescue team to show up to save them. Oh, and right, we can't let thing, it do that. Because the thing cut the power to the base, which means no matter right. what happens, they're freezing to death. Yes. So they have to blow up the place because like, they, they can't let it hibernate and wait for a rescue team and get back to civilization. Uh, yep. Childs goes missing here. Which uh, is pretty Keith key. David. Keith David's character, yeah. And... Blair, as the thing, turns up and kills Gary, which is the commander, the old guy, the one who shot the Norwegian at the start. Right. Uh, And Um, this is when Blair. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Gary was a prime suspect for a while, but yes, he he never ended up being the thing. He was uh, Kurt's primary suspect. He was like, oh, I'm so ready to torch you because I think he's the boss. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Kurt Russell just really wants to torch his boss. 
Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Blair gets him and then turns into a huge giant monster thing. Like it, this is the biggest thinging out we see and it destroys. Oh yeah. And he gets like the dog face coming out of his chest. Yeah. And, like the big alligator jaws up the side of his head. It's just like using all of the different things that it's sampled from. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so Kurt Russell as McCready, he's able he uses a stick of dynamite to trigger the explosion, and they do manage to blow the whole base. And finally, we're left with just McCready and Childs, Kurt Russell and uh, Keith David, and they're just the last ones left. They they sit and they prepare to die, and they may yeah. or may not be things. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel at this point they don't even know. They don't seem to, and they're they're prepared to die. Like they they pull out a bottle of whiskey and it's like, all right, we're we're just gonna sit here and freeze to death because there's nothing else for us to do. Yeah, they like Kurt Russell even says, well, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's a very what, nihilistic ending. Like it's and what happens is it goes to credits. Goes to credits. Uh, it's. I, I I would say the nihilism of this movie is probably why it was not a big success at the time, but also is why it's a classic now. Because like the sense. ambiguity, I yeah, I, I the ambiguity, the way it ends, like if this had a sort of like packed tacked on happy ending, it would suck. It wouldn't like that would be such a cop out. It it wouldn't work with that kind of ending. Yeah, like just suddenly um, the Norwegian rescue team decided to go to the American base and send a helicopter for no reason. Yeah, I mean, like it's so it could so easily have been studio mandated to like give it some kind of cheap happy ending. I'm really glad that that does not happen. It's a very John Carpenter ending like this is maybe the purest expression of john carpenter that there ever was even though it's not one originally by him like this is a remake oh this is a remake too oh yeah this is a remake this is a remake of the movie the thing from another world uh 50s movie where i mean it's it's the same plot but the old one they did not have anything close to these kind of special effects so it's kind of just a tall dude is the thing <laughs> all right we're gonna find out which one of you is the thing everybody stand by where i was taking little jimmy's height as he was growing up <laughs> they, we're gonna they find out who the tallest one is yeah like they they could not create a formless horror in a 50s movie so it's just an alien uh like i, I think it's able to jump from body to body so there is that element but it's when it's the thing it's just a big dude. <laughs> it's it's a really good movie though. Like it's totally a classic one. It's just and and it's one that's very much about McCarthyism specifically. Oh, oh, you know what? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's some McCarthy themes in here. Yeah, and it's pretty obvious in that version. Like you you can really see it there. Uh, so that one's very very interesting. But this one is totally my preference. This is just. I mean, there's nothing like this. The The effects are so amazing. They really are. Like, it can't be overstated how good the effects are. And just the aesthetic. I, I love the snow. I love how dark most of it is. That low light, the snow all the time. Ah, just so good. 
I was expecting a John Carpenter soundtrack, but the soundtrack for this was actually uh, I will I will butcher his name, uh, but Mor- Morricone. Yeah, Ennio Morricone. Uh, and it's almost Ennio Morricone doing a John Carpenter score. Yeah, because we got the John Carpenter synths at points. Hmm. And it's it's unusual. There's there's only like three. Or no, there's four John Carpenter movies that he did not score himself, I think. Or maybe he didn't do The War, and it's been a while since I watched that one. But uh, his two TV movies, Elvis and Someone's Watching Me, don't have a score by him. And this one and the next one, Starman. And I think all the other ones he did the score for. I think it's just like at this point he was kind of experimenting with the idea of someone else doing a score for him. But like he is the best at doing a score for his kind of movie. Like no one does a score better than him for it. I mean, yeah, like, like it, like you say, it does feel like Morricone doing John Carpenter. It's a great score. Like I love score. But when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, when I saw a part of this movie before, I don't remember it sounding like the good, the bad and the ugly. Mm hmm. And it doesn't. It doesn't. But uh, like there, there are elements of Morricone's style there as well, and like a- apparently a lot of what he composed for it was discarded by John Carpenter. Like he didn't use a lot of it. He uh, used a lot of his. Like he did insert some of his own music in there. He he sort of like he, he was not very precious about Morricone's score, and and I don't think it went over great with them. Uh, some of the discarded music cues were used in uh, Tarantino's Hateful Eight, which is sort of a thing remake as well. I never saw that one. It's pretty good. It, like it, it, you can definitely see the thing influence in it. Like it's an old West version right. uh, without the alien stuff. It's just an old West one where anyone could be the bad guy. It's pretty cool. Very okay. good movie. Right on. Uh, but not as good as this, which is just one of the 10 best movies of all time. I love it so much. Uh, just great. Uh, it's really good. It's uh, it's really uh, it's really chaotic, necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the like probably the best practical effects I've ever seen. They're just amazing. Like that uh, spider head. Like that and um, that one werewolf movie, you know, the one. Uh, American, uh, American Werewolf. American Werewolf in London, yes. Yes. Uh, the same year, I think. Maybe the year before. Both incredible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, like, th- this one has a lot more cool effects work. Like, yes, that one American had one Werewolf. scene. This one is, like, yeah. the whole, like, exactly about a third of the movie is effects. And unbelievable effects. Like, so many of them. They're all so good. Mm-hmm. Just perfect. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess that's pretty much everything I have to say on the thing for the moment. Yeah, that, uh, about, that about wraps it up, I think. All right. So I guess we will move on to our final section. All right. So entering our last section, uh, not a lot of moves this week. Not a lot of stuff I watched, uh, because one of the things I watched was very, very, very long. All right. Uh, first thing I watched is Strike Commando. Uh, so this is a Bruno Mattai film starring the great Reb Brown. Uh, Reb Brown, uh, Big McLarge Huge from Space Mutiny. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, 
it's basically him as Rambo. Ah. Uh, it, it's a Rambo knockoff written by Claudio Fragasso and Rosella Drudy, the writers of Troll 2. Okay. It's them doing their Rambo slash missing in action Vietnam film uh, shot in the Philippines. It's really over the top. It's quite hilariously absurd. Uh, It's Reb Brown as the leader of this elite team of strike commandos in Vietnam. Uh, Although it's pretty obviously the Philippines most of the time. Uh, And there's just a bunch of evil american officers who are against him like there's like a bunch of traitors who are trying to get him and there's russian military who are in the area as well <laughs> it's it's very absurd uh but a lot of fun i really like watching reb brown because he has this thing where he shrieks all the time like he <laughs> he does those screams there's a few of them in space mutiny where he just goes ah oh, there's nice. a lot of that uh, so, like, even on the cover art, you got him screaming on the back uh, back cover of the Severin Blu-ray. Two oh, yeah. of the images have him screaming as well. <laughs> I love it. It's pretty fun. Like, it's it's trashy, but it, it was a good time. Uh, I also watched Twister's Revenge from the Bill Rebane box set. Uh, so this is I, I've talked about this one briefly before. It is about three unbelievably stupid hicks just like subhuman intelligence it, it kind of right. seems like uh it, it like it's it's a very goofy exploitation type comedy but it's about them trying to steal the ai technology from a talking self-driving intelligent monster truck okay i'm sure elon musk probably would make a monster truck yeah, so it's it's an AI monster truck. It talks uh, and it, you know, it has to fight back against these guys. They kidnap the lady who developed it and they're keeping her in a cave for most of the movie. And her uh, the, the monster truck and her boyfriend have to team up to save her. <laughs> <laughs> it's silly stuff, but it's a pretty good time. All right. Uh, I watched Christine from my John Carpenter full watch uh which is his one and only stephen king adaptation i think last week i called it his first because i always think of in the mouth of madness as being stephen king but it's just a character who's kind of based on stephen king rather than it being based on a stephen king novel okay uh so christine you kind of know so this is the only one yeah kind of this is yeah this is the only stephen king adaptation john carpenter ever did which is kind of surprising considering how both of them are completely in the horror genre or kind of almost totally in that genre. Mm-hmm. And, and Stephen King gets a lot of adaptations. Yeah, like a ton of them. And it's particularly in the 80s, like there was a feeding frenzy for these. And basically, so that's why John Carpenter made this after the thing, because after the thing, he was kind of having trouble getting work because he that that was a flop. So this was like him getting back in the good graces of the studios so this one's kind of not as much of a passion project oh i see uh but it's great like it's really well made uh there is a sequence where well so so christine is is a 1958 plymouth fury that's just evil right uh it's it's an evil car like most cars are 
Yeah, and there's no backstory to it. It's just like it literally opens with it on the assembly line and it's evil. Cool. And and that's great. I love it. There there's just no backstory to it. It's just an evil car and it possesses people. Uh, so you have Arnie, who's a nerd in high school, and he buys this car and restores it, and it turns him into an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's it's very interesting. Like coming from Stephen King, it's very obvious as a metaphor for alcoholism and addiction, because it's oh, okay. just you know he he gets this car and it sort of takes over his life. It's the only thing that matters to him. Uh, all of the people in his life are secondary to the car. It's a pretty, pretty one-to-one thing about addiction and alcoholism. Cause that was an issue Stephen King had at the time. Uh, it's a very horny movie because it said it, it's, you know, it's a high school rock and roll type thing, which right, is also right. very unusual for John Carpenter, not his usual style. Yeah, I don't think I've seen a horny John Carpenter film, actually. this The thing wasn't horny. Who? No. I, I think and this I'd is probably that, the only one that is. Uh, yeah, the gangs of New... Or, uh, not <laughs> gangs of New York. <laughs> Assault on Wow. <laughs> now I want to see John Carpenter do gangs of New York. That would be very uh, No, different. I don't. It would be a lot shorter. Yeah, it would. <laughs> uh but yeah, I mean, like I, the thing, I mean, there were not, it, it was an exclusively male cast. Just un- yeah, unusual. Was. Yeah. And just all set isolated and it, and it's a very masculine movie. Uh, Christine, I, it's, it's sort of one of his lesser films to most people, but I was very impressed by it because it's like the craftsmanship is impeccable. The effects are unreal. Like the car is able to fix itself and the scenes of the car fixing itself are so cool. And there is a part where the car uh, just drives through a gas station and the whole thing explodes and the car is on fire. And there's a sequence of the car on fire chasing someone. And it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It's one of the best effects ever. It's unbelievably cool looking. Just really pounding John Carpenter's score and this car on fire on a darkened highway chasing after this one guy running. It's so cool looking. So next I watched Offerings, which I mentioned last week. That was a new one that's a it's a Halloween knockoff. And wow, is it ever a Halloween knockoff? Oh, oh really? <laughs> so last last week I said it was a Halloween knockoff, except it was at Christmas. It's not at Christmas. Uh, I was just misled by the cover art. It's not on a, it might honestly be at Halloween. Uh, It's so it's about this guy who escapes from a mental institution and he's killing a bunch of teens. (laughs) I mean, it's the same thing as Halloween, except uh, it starts like it, it, it's based on a thing that happened in the childhood. Like uh, the, the guy fell down a well and he blames these teens for it, so he's killing all of them. Uh, and it's pretty dumb. It's very silly. But there is one hilarious thing is that he kills one of the guys, and then he chops him up into pizza to- chops him up and cooks him into pizza <laughs> toppings, and then delivers two pizzas of pizza toppings with the guy uh, to the rest of the dead mates, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> that's, okay, that's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> But otherwise, it is very, very straight, just 
it is a Halloween clone through and through, which is amazing because it was 1989. Like, it's not a first wave one. Oh, wow. That's, that's a bit late to be jumping on the Halloween clone bandwagon. Yeah, especially when it is like note for note. There is a there is a Dr. Loomis character, like everything there. All of the characters are mirrored in some way. Yeah, you know, but it is a fun time. If you like dumb slasher movies, and I do, it's good. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then the one that I watched that took up a considerable amount of time, I watched Video Nasty's Draconian Days slash The Definitive Guide. So the first part of it is just like a 90-minute or hour 40-ish documentary on... Uh, all all of the censorship of video and videotapes in Britain because they had this really draconian setup where just, there was one guy who decided what Britons were allowed to watch on home video. This guy, James Furman. <laughs> it's always one guy and he always has the worst opinions. Yeah. So like it's always think. he's a white guy, isn't he? Oh, of course he's a, he's a w- rich white guy who doesn't who who feels like anyone who doesn't have money probably can't be trusted to make their own decisions regarding their entertainment. Like uh, very, it, it's very classist, uh, a lot of his stuff. So it, the, the documentary goes through the years, I think like 87 to 1999, which is when he was finally ousted because amazingly he legalized pornography in Britain, just kind of unilaterally by himself uh, okay. because he, he felt that, Regular pornography would be uh, a reasonable way to do it rather than the violence because he he was very upset by violence in movies. So he decided to legalize pornography instead. Uh, And it turns out no one else in the government was all that happy about it. So he got fired. But that's how porn got legalized in Britain. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, through this guy who was heavily censoring, like personally editing them so p- for them to go out. Like he would just cut everything out, like all of the horror stuff out of horror movies. So the, the horror movies that people saw in Britain on VHS were really heavily censored and cut to shit uh, up until so, so like the thing year would 2000. Just be about a dog? Uh, it would if it was even allowed to be released there. Ah. Uh, that is one that he had a really personal vendetta against and it did not come out or no, it, or no, it came out and it was on. So yeah, that, that's the other part of it. So it's a three disc set and discs two and three are the section three list, which is a list that the police had. And it's like 80, some 82 titles, uh, that, if the police came across in your home or in your shop, they could confiscate it and fine you and destroy it. And The Thing is one of the movies on there. Like, that is a movie that just was illegal to have or watch. Oh, was this the list that the public didn't get to know about? Yeah, the public had, until this documentary was made, no one knew this list existed. So you could be breaking the rules and having, like, illegal stuff in your house and you wouldn't even know until the cops came and used it as an excuse to yeah. do whatever cops do. Yeah, which is why they use the the term draconian for it, because that's wow. ridiculous. So discs two and three are the trailers for all 82 movies on that list. 
with oh, wow. uh, each uh, introduced by various people who are interested in exploitation film, like, you know, various critics and uh, people who were active renting in that era. Uh, and they talk about why they were on that list or why they theorize they were on that list, because, you know, no one really knows what went on some of them are really odd choices because some of them do not seem like they're all that troubling is the guy like still alive can we can they ask him or uh they do interview they have a lot of interview footage with him in this one i i think in the first one too i it's though i watched that one like a year or so ago but um they have a lot of footage with him i think he has died now uh, because like he was pretty old in 99 when he got fired, but there's lots and lots of footage of him talking about why he did the stuff. So it's not really a mystery and you can sort of get an idea, but some of the stuff on there, it's like, we figure it's probably on there just cause it has zombie in the title for this one, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's fascinating though. Uh, so altogether it's about 13 hours and that's what I did all day Saturday. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it's great. Uh, very fascinating. I loved seeing all of these trailers. I've I have probably about a third of the movies on the list. That's it. Yeah, there's a lot of them that <laughs> I had not even heard of uh, that Holy I'm kind of interested to check out. So some of them I totally will be adding uh, in the next. <laughs> all movie. right. Uh, and last one I watched. I uh, just watched this one today. Invention for Destruction, uh, which is a Carol Zeman film whose a very interesting 50s Czech filmmaker uh, who did this very elaborate stop-motion animation paper craft work. Okay. So this is his adaptation of a Jules Verne novel uh, about you know, the, the age of invention and uh, blimps and like uh, aerial bicycles and submarines and super villains and all of that stuff and oh, it's just like all the of the stuff we could have had if we didn't have capitalism it's it's like a steampunk steampunk 1900s future like a an, an, a 19th century kind of future uh and it, it, like it looks absolutely incredible the design of it is some of the coolest i've ever seen because uh everything is made to look like old like 19th century woodcut illustrations like you'd have in books. So everything has tons of parallel lines on them. So it looks like that even like water, they'll overlay lines across uh, waves. So it looks like a book illustration and it looks absolutely amazing from beginning to end. Not much of a plot. I, I totally lost any semblance of the plot while I was watching it, but I was mesmerized by how it looked the whole time. Right on, right on. Uh, so that's all. Those are all the picks uh, from that's, last week. All right. That's not a lot this time. Pretty, um, pretty slim choices. Now, for the video nasties, you said that it was like an hour and a half documentary and then yeah. the uh, trailers. Yeah. How important is it to watch all 80 some hours of tra or whatever? Many oh, hours not important. Of trailers. I, I w those are special features. Like, oh, it's okay. interesting to watch them, and I totally recommend checking out a handful of titles that you're interested in, but uh, the documentary does stand alone, absolutely. Oh, good, good, because I was thinking about that, because I kind of want to learn about, well, I mean, I already had questions, so obviously I want to learn about this, True. so maybe let's do that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that one is pretty fascinating, and I'd say there's probably a lot to talk about there. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah.
All right. And so for the new additions, there's also only a handful of these. Uh, from the Bill Rabane box, we're to the last picture there, uh, which is a documentary on Bill Rabane called Who is Bill Rabane? Uh, so it's just a doc about this guy. He's a regional Wisconsin filmmaker who's originally from Latvia. Uh, his stuff is very low budget, very slow, very silly. Uh, I don't, I feel like you probably have not seen any Bill Rabane movies. You've never seen Giant Spider Invasion, have you? No, I don't think so. That's the only one I figure you might have seen. Because I don't like, so the two that he did on Mystery Science Theater are probably his most widely seen Monster Agogo and uh, Giant Spider Invasion. Although Blood Harvest, his slasher with Tiny Tim, is pretty fun too. <laughs> Tiny Tim? Tiny <laughs> Tim. It's a slasher movie on a farm. <laughs> and he's he plays a clown. Tiny Tim as a clown in a slasher movie on a farm. Very strange. <laughs> Uh, from the John Carpenter stack, we have Starman. Uh, this is one of the few John Carpenters I've never seen. Oh, really? So it's Jeff Bridges. Uh, he's an alien who his spacecraft is shot down. Uh, and he takes the form of... There, there's a lady in the woods. Like he, he lands at her remote cabin in the woods. And he takes the form of her dead husband. Uh, and it's okay. just him and her going cross country trying to run away from you know government agents trying to capture him yeah i i don't know much about it i've heard it's really good but somehow okay. it's one that's just escaped me until now interesting all right uh under offerings we have guyana cult of the damned <laughs> which is about uh the which is about Jonestown, except they didn't use real names. So it's about James Johnson and his <laughs> Johnsontown cult. <laughs> but otherwise, oh, it, it's a pretty straight retelling of, uh, you know, the whole uh, Jamestown cult and killings and suicide, mass suicide and all of that. I've never seen this one. It looks pretty interesting. It was made in Mexico and came out like two or three months after. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> It came out really quick. Like this is exploitation cinema, just like jumping on a new story. Man, I, I'm just imagining like uh, if it were Hollywood doing that, they'd be like in the post-production phase, and it's like, hey, um, something happened at Guyana. Oh, what happened at Guyana? We got to change the whole movie. Why? What happened at Guyana? <laughs> see this one they they made it because that happened so like they just made it fast after it happened it's like oh we're exploiting this big time oh wow okay <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's pretty crazy uh i've never seen this one but i've seen a lot of clips from it and it looks wild all right all right uh also added uh from under video nasties uh the beast in the cellar uh, I've not seen this one. This is a video nasty, uh, not from this list, but from the original list, because that's list three. And uh, this is <laughs> so there's three different lists. There were two public lists which are covered right. in the first documentary. Beast in the Cellar is something that appeared on the original list, I believe. Uh, although it, it is a British film and it's about these two spinster sisters who have this beast walled up in their basement that escapes and kills people. I don't know a whole lot else about it. Just weird 70s British horror. Okay. 
And so you last, haven't seen that one either? I have not seen that one. Uh. And last one uh, the from the Carol Zeman set is The Fabulous Baron Munchausen. Uh, have you ever seen Gilliam's Munchausen movie, Terry Gilliam's? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, so uh, Baron Munchausen is like this German folk hero character. Uh, he comes from a novel in, I think, the 18th century about this guy who just tells the greatest tall tales. Uh, and so this is like his paper craft, stop motion animation uh, w- blended with live action version of that. Uh, and I have seen it before and it looks again, totally amazing. Okay. Uh, and that's it. That's everything all that's right. added. All right. All right. All right. Um, well, so for our main movie, what we feel in, what we feel in indeed. Uh, I almost, I almost picked the second Gamera movie. Cause it's so um, much fun. Yeah, I, I'd be into it. I mean, we did just like we we sort of stepped back this week for one that was not yet on or was sort of past the list. Oh yeah, that's right, because that because it was the second one on the list. Because true, but because we had to that. go back because you gotta you gotta get your fundamentals in with Gamera. Well, where where else is Gamera <laughs> gonna come from? We're not gonna see. They're not gonna just show Batman's parents being killed in every movie, are they? I'm pretty sure they don't show Gamera's origin again for some reason. <laughs> Maybe they That's do in the fine. second one. Yeah, they don't well, need to. He's you Gamera. Don't need to. He's a giant turtle. Yeah, it's, it's what do you fine. need to know? Just, we he don't even rockets. know the origin to begin with. Exactly. He just showed up. He has and rockets. it doesn't make any sense that he has rockets if he just showed up from under the earth. It's, yeah, that doesn't. Like, I think he doesn't have an origin story until the 90s version. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. Well, hell, Let, let's do uh, let's do the second Gamera movie. I'm sure All that's right. not on the video nasties. Uh, it definitely is not. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, next week we will do Gamera versus Baragon, and uh, uh, what was the other one again? <laughs> uh, video nasties. Video nasties two draconian days. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And yeah. keep keep watching the stacks. Word. <laughs>